welcome to this third part on this kind of podcast, if you like, on stress, really looking at depth and not just stress, but also resilience. Really importantly, we're looking at resilience and we're looking at what resilience is and how to grow in resilience in life. Because that's the kind of thing that gives us the edge. It helps us to live well in the world. Now, I've said before, there are four kinds of stress. Well, technically there are. There are four kinds of distress. That's negative stress. And that's environmental stress, developmental stress, social and interrelational stress, and, and perceptual stress, how we see things. So there's four kinds there. And this time, I want to introduce a new kind of stress, which is positive stress, eustress. So we'll have the five kinds of stress. So we're going to be talking about those. And so that's to catch us up to speed a little bit, okay? So that's the four kinds of distress, environmental, developmental, social, interrelational, and perceptual. And then the eustress, the good stuff, the stuff we need, the stuff that helps us. And we'll be looking at the relationships between these. And they are all interrelated. And when you understand how you do stress, then you can begin to reverse engineer it and grow in resilience. You can't really grow resilience that well without understanding the mechanisms of how you do stress. You've got to do the, you know, it's like learning at ABC. You've got to learn, well, how do I do that first before you can deconstruct it and do something differently? So think of this kind of podcast and the work we do and think of the course we're working with online, the stress, tr stress transformation course, Stress to Radical Resilience. Think of this as your personal kind of resilience project, which is what you're doing. You're growing into resilience. Now, we talked about resilience last time, if you look at the previous podcasts as well. And resilience comes actually from arboriculture, from working with trees. And it, it comes from the concept of a tree bending in the wind. And the wind makes the tree stronger. It builds stronger fibers to be able to deal with it. It's just like um, when we're kids, you know, the, 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 you know, when we're growing and running around and jumping around, which unfortunately children are doing less these days. They're confined to classrooms and rooms and buildings and cities and stuff. We don't have the same options to run and jump and play, as, or, or many don't anyway. But what that running, jumping, playing, climbing and falling out of trees does a lot of the time is build stronger skeletons. It actually builds that resilience into the bones so you know these are the kind of things we're looking at and resilience is where we where we we, we don't stop being stressed that, that didn't happen but we learn to ride the stress we surf it and we use the experience to become even stronger we learn you know we're constantly learning keeping in what i like to call a learning frame which i'm going to cover again and we've covered this before so resilience is not a collapse Resilience is not a collapse into an adrenalized reaction, but a, it, it, it requires a switching on of other neurotransmitters, including dopamine as well, and DHEA and various others, and, and so, which enable us to anticipate and actually beat the challenge. We can, we can envisage, we can think, I can do this, we can set goals, we can do what we need to do to set those pieces in place, to get the actions in place that we need to do to meet that challenge. That's what resilience is very much so. It's training our brain. It's training our brain. It's training our whole nervous system. It's training our glands. It's training our body. So, you know, when we fall off the metaphorical horse, we can climb back on again. We ride and we ride better every single time. Like I've said before, resilience is using applied knowledge 
So we're learning something and then we're applying it through our behavior, through our body. So it becomes from, you know, it's, it's embodied knowledge. It's not just living up in the cerebral cap, the top of the top bit of the brain here. It's where we're embodying that, putting it into our world. We're walking the talk and walking the talk is what counts here. In, you know, in the world of resilience, it's walking the talk. It's embodying that, that really, really matters. And to do that, to, to apply knowledge for the purposes of freedom and to use it as a learning curve, we have to give ourselves space to get things wrong. If we can't get a, give ourselves space to make a mess of things, to get things wrong and to start again, it's very difficult to manage. So, and again, a lot of us are taught that we have to, you know, somehow come up with a magical answer at school straight away. And this kind of thing, a lot of us have learning some scars. I certainly have had my share. You know, I learned at school that I was rubbish at learning. I learned at school that I was stupid. I don't know if that happened to you or not, but I'm not. You know, I learned an awful lot of bad things about myself at school because not because of me, but because the teaching scenarios and the teaching situation, the teaching context wasn't a teaching context. It was compliance. It was conformity. It was doing as you're told. It was sit down and be quiet. It was all that kind of thing, which, of course, is not always necessarily a very good learning uh, situation. So what we often learn is that we um, learn to blame ourselves. We learn to shame ourselves. We learn to blame others for our responses. And, and, and when we stop doing those things, the blame, the shame, the guilt, unless it's learning guilt, and we stop blaming others, when we start to take responsibility, we can remain in a learning frame. So again, I just want to cover again, this is tidying up from the last time, just recapping a little bit. And again, you can look at the previous sessions if you want to. What is a learning frame? What's a learning frame? Last time I defined it, I think quite beautifully, that a a learning frame is a mental and emotional state of observation. It's awareness. It's curiosity. It's choice. And I'm going to add in compassion. It's also compassion. It's important to be compassionate to ourselves and to others when we're in the learning frame. Otherwise, again, we can spiral down into shame and blame and that kind of thing. So we have to give ourselves space to be compassionate and listen to ourselves. You know, compassion is not a strong point in 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 the, in the modern world in a way um not real compassion but so so we're building in that compassion as well it's like i said observation awareness it's curiosity it's choice and it's compassion observation means we can clearly see the nature of the phenomena what's happening thoughts feelings body sensations they're in awareness so awareness is crucial and this is one of the reasons why we practice the meta disciplines and why i'm so strong on teaching them you know, conscious breath work, meditative depth, really good mind training, skillful mind training, yeah, and also embodied awareness and really understanding how those operate in a meaningful, systematic way so that we can dive deep into those and they become tools with which we can apply to change the direction, the focus and create a new vision for our life. So those meta-disciplines are super important because they build a, a huge degree um of that depth awareness, finding that depth awareness. Curiosity is a playful inquiry. Playfulness is important. Curiosity is super important. You know, creativity comes out of playfulness and curiosity. Oh, what, what happens if I do this? You know, it's experimentation, it's exploration, it's fantastic. And choice, informed choice is the capacity to make a decision based on all the information we have at our hands. And to make that decision full well knowing that the choice we make is going to have consequences. 
that all decisions have consequences. Whatever decision we make in the world has consequences. That's the way it is. And when we make that decision, we can only see some of the consequences, some of the potential consequences, half of them or so, we won't be able to see. So when we when we take a step into the future, we go past the, the, the choice point where we made the decision and we go on a year or whatever it is in the future and we look back, we can think, oh, I made a mistake there. I should have made a different choice because of these consequences. But there are always consequences and there are always difficult consequences. And if we could go back in time to make a different choice, we'd still make the same choice because we had the same awareness. So we couldn't have made a different choice anyway. And even if we could have made a different choice and did make a different choice, we didn't. And we don't know what else, what other consequences a different choice would have led to. It would have led to other consequences, some of which would not be so fruitful. So the kind of blame game of blaming ourselves for our choices when we've made the best choice we can, is crazy. It's not a good thing to do. It's just going to, it's kind of like a, a, an act of self-harm. You know, we make the best choices we can out of the best decision making, out of the best information we have at the time. We make the choice, we take the consequences, and we have to be ready to take the consequences that aren't so pleasant, because some of them won't be, because that's the way it is. And that's okay. Yeah. So, you know, choice is important and being able to be with and live with the choices we make. So it's good to have that awareness in place so we can make the best, most informed choice. Compassion. What's compassion? There's a whole course on my website on compassion, which you can access. It's a really good course looking at what compassion is. Compassion starts here. It's an inside job. It begins on the inside. We're you know, finding compassion for our own behaviors, choices, actions, and emanating that outwards whilst remaining centered. So it's full empathic connection whilst remaining centered and acting on that empathic engagement. I said again, it's staying centered, full empathic engagement with the world around us, and acting on that and a good way to make a difference uh, aiming to make a difference for ultimately all beings everywhere is the kind of you know frame that's often used within the um, traditions with which i'm particularly familiar so staying in a learning frame given things as they are now what can i do from here what choices do i have where is the leverage and how can i apply that those are the kind of questions we ask ourselves when we're in a learning frame and learning to live from a place of resilience. For today, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the biology of stress. I want to look a little bit more about what's going on inside of us when we go into distress and, um, and also potentially look at when we go into eustress. So the first thing's first. There's a phenomena. There's something that happens, whether it's inside of us, a thought or a feeling or a sensation, or even a change in breathing, because a change of breathing can bring on a stressful situation for people, if that's connected to a previous trauma, for example. So first of all, there's a phenomena, and this acts as a stressor. There's no such thing as stress on the outside. It's a phenomena which acts as a stressor, which then triggers us into an internal cascade. And the first part of that is perception. And the perception is subcortical usually it's subcortical that means it's below thinking you know there's a moment of perception where our brain goes i can handle this or i can't handle this and that's connected to previous experience it's connected like we said in the previous podcast it's connected to traumas we had as a child it's connected to how our parents 
did stress and what we learned about stress management from them, from the schools we went to, from the cultures we lived in. And those cultures, those communities, those schools, the, the families we grew up in, those, you know, whatever institution we may grow up in, whatever situation it was that we grew up in, we learn from all of that how to do stress. The first thing we have to do is understand how we do it so we can deconstruct it and make new choices, new informed choices. So the first thing is always awareness. So it's phenomena first, which acts as a stress and triggers a perception, a subcortical perception of yes, I can or no, I can't. And that's it's not even it's not even the realm of thinking at that point. It doesn't even get that far. So instantly, instantly that perception is made. The, you know, the subcortical brain areas of the amygdala, which is kind of like a watchdog in the brain that is it's kind of like a half blind, half deaf watchdog. So it barks loudly at anything that vaguely resembles that burglar that once came by. It's kind of like that. So it doesn't rely on full information. It doesn't have all the sensory input. It's just that this thing is close enough to something that happened before. And that was scary. So this is scary. And the amygdala fires off a stress response like that. And that activates the hypothalamus. So whether the amygdala is activated, which it often is, or whether it's subcortical into the hypothalamus, there's a moment of perception in that, which is connected to past memory. And the hypothalamus is kicked off. And then the pituitary. And they take over and they create the stress cascade in this whole kind of subcortical reflex. So I'm going to go a little bit more into each of these pieces, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and how that affects then the adrenaline, um, the adrenal glands and the release of adrenaline. But it's, you know, but it is this rapid fire action. And again, you know, I can do something really simple. I just may do this. I just go like that and just making a sound like that and what happens to a lot of people is they instantly get this startle reflex and the adrenalized reaction like that forgive me if that did for you that's not yeah but you get a sense of that and you can feel that hot release of adrenaline you know in your arms and your belly and everywhere yeah so that's that's how quickly that's how quickly it can occur very very rapid so this stress cascade is phenomena which is a stimulus acts as a stressor perception, and then neuroendocrine activation, the, uh, the the amygdala, you know, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and so forth. And that then affects the physiology of the body. And that then informs and affects behavior. It drives us into behavior. When we get strong emotions as part of that, that systemic response, it drives us into behavior. We're driven into action by emotions, which is what emotions are for. You know, as mammals, that's why we have them. You know, reptiles aren't known for their um, limbic system, their emotional brain. They don't have a lot of attachment and bonding going on with their babies. Most of them don't anyway. Some do. Some of them have nests, but most don't. And they're, so they're not known for that. We've got this limbic system, which really, you know, it's kind of an emotional network in the brain that gives us this connectivity to other human beings when it works well anyway. And, you know, there are all sorts of attachment disorders where, where that's not functioning fully based on early years experiences and stuff but basically it's there to give us this connectivity and also in a sense reactivity the, you know the the the, the under the, under the thinking the subcortical level of just do this thing and of course what we learn as we grow up particularly when the prefrontal cortex comes on and it comes on around between the ages of 24 and 27 you know we don't have full access to full informed choice until about 26 27 years of age so you know when we're growing up as teenagers we don't have that 
informed choice. Uh, you know, we're much more driven by emotion. Um, you know, it's important to understand this because otherwise we may, we have unreasonable expectations of of young people if we don't understand brain biology. Now, physiology is kind of what happens in the glandular expression of the um, threat of the, you know, the stress cascade. And it involves the release of the stress mediators, which are hormones. And the, the first one that's released is adrenaline, which you just felt if you went into an adrenalized response when I made that sound. That's adrenaline. Yeah. Now, adrenaline has a very rapid, you know, you know within, within microseconds, it has an effect through the whole system. Uh, it, you know, it, it leads to, you know, it, it really is very strong. You know what it's like. What are some of the things it does? Well, some of the things it does is create butterfly feelings in the gut that people associate with anxiety and fear, you know, because it's changing, it's actually changing the blood flow away from the gut into the muscles and the brain. It's pulling blood, shunting blood out of the gut super quickly. And the sort of recoil and the, the you know, the um, enteric nervous system responds to that with a bit, bit of quickening. You know, it, it can change peristalsis, the movement of the gut. So we feel like sometimes we need to have a poo or a wee or something, you know, but there's a lot going on in the gut instantaneously, almost immediately with that adrenalized response. It changes breathing instantly. It increases the rate of breathing. It can make breathing more apical, like bring it up here, lifts it up into the chest a bit. And it can, not always, it, there's none of these are always. It can make um, breathing more, more oral. It can take it through the mouth a little bit. <gasps> get a gasp of air coming in so those are some of the changes it also increases blood flow to the muscles getting ready for action and that's particularly on an inhale and it also increases um, brain activation looking for what to do here and the kinds of behavioral response that those patterns can lead to we have names for and one of those is fight getting ready to fight deal with the situation another one is flight running away from the situation and those are classic animal responses to um, this adrenaline hormone. Another one, of course, is freeze, like the rabbit in the headlights. And each of these has a breath pattern associated with it, which is unique for each individual. It's not there's one breath pattern associated with fight and one with flight. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a breath pattern for each individual associated with these things. Freeze, for example. If you do, well, How do you do freeze? If you do freeze for a moment and freeze. Notice what you do to do freeze, and then turn that, ossify that slightly, make it a bit more rigid and stay with it for a period of time, and turn that into a breathing behavior. And you've got a, you've got a way of changing your breath over time and training the breath into a particular pattern over time. You could do the same on, on, on flight. Maybe when you do flight, you lift up here, and if you turn the breath pattern up here, that becomes an entrained breath pattern. What happens when you do fight? Do you lift your shoulders? Do you roll the shoulders forward? What do you do? What's your fight pattern like? Do you lean forwards? Do you pull back? What's, your, what's yours like? How does it affect your breath? So coming into individual expressions of this, not that there's kind of one pattern fits all. Life and biology is not like that. Much more nuanced and therefore more beautiful. Another pattern of behavior that can occur from those adrenal hormones is flop, where we kind of uh, collapse. You know, I, we all know these patterns. I know them. You know, sometimes 
we're on demand. We've had a lousy night's sleep or three bad nights in a row. If you've had little children, you know what that's like when you have little kids and you have to meet those demands and there's something happening, another thing happens, another, you know, you get a string of complex phenomena happening, which you have to meet those demands. And before you know it, you're going, oh, no, not another one. Oh, oh, oh. that kind of feeling. Oh, that feeling of collapse. You know it. We all know it. Question is, you have to know your patterns. What do you do? when you do that and if you feel that pattern where you're doing into that kind of spinal flexion curling the spine forward closing in around the diaphragm you know maybe pushing your face forward maybe dropping it down but that what does that pattern do to your breathing what does that pattern do to the way you think what does that pattern do to the way you perceive so getting really familiar with your own patterns is absolutely crucial like i say because when we put our pattern through the lens of awareness We've got something that's workable. We can really, really work with it. And that is the magic. Now, other effects of these hormones on, on brain function are quite strong. I mean, they, they reduce learning capacity. They make it hard to learn. And we know that somebody who's been adrenalized or certainly in a cortisol state for a long time, the hippocampus, which is associated with learning, actually shrinks in size. The amygdala, the bit that the, the blind watchdog can grow in size and get, become a big watchdog and the hippocampus the learning bit shrinks down shrinks down shrinks down and we find it harder and harder to learn it changes again with neuroplastic changes we can change those around we change the way we think change the way we feel work with breath practice and mind training and we can change those structures of the brain over time and with practice but it gives you an idea you know it really affects learning it reduces memory living in a stress state reduces memory it leads to poorer decision-making. You know, the choices we make, whether to buy this on a shelf, we might buy something that actually, you know, to eat that actually is less optimal for us. We might do that. We might engage in behaviors that are less optimal. It doesn't help us to make good choices, partly because it's shutting blood flow down from the prefrontal cortex. And again, we're going into this kind of slightly withdrawn, slightly reactive uh, patterned state of responses, which doesn't give us full informed choice. One of the beauties of breath work is when we can comfortably and easily go into a sympathetic nervous system response and stay happy in it, stay clear in it, so it doesn't take us into a place of distress at all. And that gives us a huge amount of freedom. One of the other consequences of living in a stressful state is it reduces empathy. We can't feel other people's context anywhere near as well. It leads to a rise in kind of narcissistic trait where we're just focused on our own survival. It's all about me, all about me. And I've got to do this thing for me because it's about me. So we, and we shut down, we actually shut down. The mirror neurons don't work as well. They can even atrophy. You know, we change, the brain changes the way it works when we live in these states for a long time. And we look at, you know, young kids who've grown up in complex situations where they're taken away from their parents and run through various forms of institutional control and we can see a, a reduction of empathy as these children grow up into adolescence on young young people you know they they have less empathy now you know ironically we find that type of characteristic in public schools so our countries certainly in the uk where i live is sometimes run by people who've been trained their brain has been trained in reduced empathy 
there's not enough capacity to feel into and do something about the complex difficulties of other people's situations. It's not just public schools, it's all sorts of places, but that's just one of the ways that the young people are trained in that. But we know that stress and complexity reduces empathy. That's another aspect of it. You know, there's a whole lot of other effects of distress as well. Distract for just the effects of distress on physiology and largely they're cardiometabolic. You know, if we look at the effects of stress on well-being, we find that, you know, there's huge increase in cardiometabolic disorders. The more, the longer, longer the distress goes on, yeah, that affects the cells. It affects blood flow. It affects oxygen getting into the cells. It's affecting everything. It's affecting how you think. It's affecting your behaviors. It affects your glands. It affects everything. You know, you're going to have less libido for a start. Okay. You know, you're going to have an increased risk of cancer. You can have increased risk of heart attack and stroke. You're going to have increased risk in diabetes and conditions that involve inflammation in the system. So all of those are increased risks as well as an increased risk of dementia. So those kind of things, you know, in conditions of inflammation, cardiometabolic disorders, that's your heart attacks, your strokes, all that kind of stuff, you know, cancer and also dementia. All of those are increased risks with longer, more expansive periods of stress. Now, we live in a world in which stress is endemic. You know, the National Health Service statistics in the UK show that over 70% of people live in a state of stress and overwhelm nearly all of the time. That's, that's massive. That's massive. And 50% of our young people or more are struggling with mental health conditions. That's massive. And the, and the UK is not different. 25% of the populations in the, in, the, in, the, in the modern world are taking pharmaceuticals to change their brain state because they're either depressed, anxious, or unhappy in some way. And they're really, really struggling. And those pharmaceuticals are giving them enough of an edge to be able to function relatively normally. But we're talking about a huge percentage of the population, 25% and over. If you look at the number of people on pharmaceuticals, it is immense. Now, all of this is fertile ground to work with because what we're working with is we're transforming stress. If we can work with transforming stress and its consequences in terms of you know, our brain function, in terms of our behaviors, and in terms of our health outcomes over time, one, we make life a whole lot better for us and our families, but also save, you know, we can we can save a huge amount of money you know, socially, publicly with healthcare and things like that. These kind of strategies are absolutely profound in terms of enabling these kind of radical changes to human well-being. And they have to apply it individually because each individual has to learn their patterns of how they do it. Because then from that basis, then we can start to work with. And again, this is where things, why the meta-disciplines come in. It gives us enough awareness of what's happening in the body enough awareness of what's happening with the breath, enough awareness of what's happening with our mind and linking those together into a seamless web of, of awareness. And within that, then we have the tools um, to stay well, to be well, to thrive and to live well in the world. Stress is a killer. It really is. You know, it changes our behaviors towards ourselves. It, it includes withdrawal from relationships. A lot of people in relationships really struggle, you know, and this is, and, and stress is a huge part of this. You know, it leads to angry, violent behavior, depression, anxiety, 
a lack of self-care, a lack of other care. You know, it, it leads to a rise in neglect and abuse within relationships. Stress is, is hugely implicated in all of these. And it leads to a thing called displacement aggression. And displacement aggression is where a primate, in this case a human primate, shuffles its stress down what it perceives as the pecking order to someone who, some, some being yeah, who's lower in the pecking order. That might be um, a partner. It might be a child. It might be a, a, an animal, you know, a dog or a cat or something. But it, it but it, you know, it's, it's it's the kicking the dog syndrome. Yeah. So that that's displacement aggression. It's what primates do. But if we're not aware of that and we're just in a reactive, stressed out state because we're struggling with finances, we're struggling with, you know, work, we're struggling with, you know, emotional situations that we may find ourselves. And emotions are massively complex for us human beings in terms of managing them well. You know, if we're if we're in unhealthy relationships or, you know, not in a healthy relationship sometimes, you know, the stress of all of that can be very complicated for us human beings to deal with. So having tools again to manage all of this is absolutely critical. And then we start thinking about the modern world with its tech demands. You know, here we go. One of my screens, yeah, many screens here. And the demands of these devices, um, you know, are are pretty impressive. You know, we we, you know, the, I'm talking to one now. Here we go, talking to you through this. But I'm talking on one now, and there's another one here. And these these demands we have for emails and messaging, and our attention and the way it binds our brains in dopaminergic loops, in, you know, attentional loops into the into the screen which is how social media is built. Social media is built around binding your attention into that particular app or that particular thing is to keep you in there. And of course, this is becoming increasingly prevalent. And if we look at children's games, the way that children are rewarded for staying in the game, you know, staying part of something, or you're rewarded on your phone for finding that fantastic video on Instagram or, you know, that lovely piece of, information of somebody doing something on on facebook or whatever or sharing something whatever kind of neurochemical neuroendocrine reward you get from that that binds you in there again and again and again and again and of course pornography is also part of that process as well so all these kind of things are actually quite unhealthy for us human beings the modern world is largely about funneling wealth and moving money around so money is connected to life energy and I think if you think about it in terms of, you know, the, how much you work, you work an amount of time and that time you're never going to get back. Time is an inexorable tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock to the point of the last breath. That's how it is. So when we get paid for an hour of time, that's an hour we will never get back. If you value your time or if your time is valued at X dollars, per hour, X pounds per hour, X UN per hour, or whatever the currency is from wherever you live, you know, that you're never going to get back. That's time, time closer to death. So it's, you know, we, we have this implicit deep knowledge that we're going to die. And we have this implicit deep knowledge of the amount of time it is, the decades that are left. So doing a life audit where we come in and we can check out, what am I doing with my time? What's my, what's precious here? How do I focus on what's precious? How do I enable what's precious? Whether it's my passion, whether it's purpose, whether it's 
you know, progeny, your children, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your parents, whatever you're doing in the world, what are your priorities? And are you living to those priorities? Because if you're not, if you're just using your time for small money, and, and sometimes this has to happen until you can upskill, until you can upgrade your skills and, and you know, get more return for your time, that's what happens. Because we live in a wealth funneling system. And that wealth funneling system will reward certain attributes and certain characteristics. That's the way it is. So we have to work with that. But it's recognizing the stress that comes with that, which is connected to that inevitable tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock of time. So all of this is tied into your hypothalamus. Your hypothalamus is an amazing part of the brain. It's just behind your eyes here, back in the middle of the head behind here, or straight behind here. And it's 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 a little kind of little tiny kind of P-shaped, P-sized structure. It's a little tiny structure or a little stalk coming out sort of midbrain. And it's kind of the union. Well, it isn't kind of the union. It is the union between the endocrine system, all the glands that release hormones. They pump kind of liquid hormones into the body. It's the union between your brain and all of those glands. So it's one neuroendocrine system. The hypothalamus is responsible for releasing all the hormones into your system that exist. So it either uh, inhibits them or it increases the activation of them. And it does so microsecond by microsecond. It's very responsive. It's responsive to the environment. It's responsive to what you're thinking, what you're feeling and everything. And the hypothalamus is key to that. And the hypothalamus then communicates to the pituitary. There's two parts of the pituitary, the anterior and the posterior, but the, the posterior then releases the hormones. So there's this dance between the hypothalamus and the pituitary that then affects all the other glands. And these include the glands in the throat, thyroid glands, which deal with metabolic rate, the thymus in the chest, which is uh, connected to uh, immunity and finishing off T killer cells that reduces in size a lot after the age of about 24. And then we've got the um, adrenal glands, the adrenal medulla and the, and the adrenal cortex releasing different hormones, some which to do with water fluid balance, some which, which to do with, um, you know, stress levels. Adrenaline comes from the adrenal glands. By the way, it's called epinephrine in the US. And then we, of course, have got the ovaries, the ovaries and the testes. And all those glands are influenced and controlled by the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And sometimes all that together is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Sometimes the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis but it's an axis where the brain through those core line glands and um and hypothalamus is, is in charge of all of that and it's part of the brain and that's directly connected it has a network of connections to your emotional brain to your prefrontal cortex to your thoughts to movement to everything to sense fields so it's connected in this web with everything so everything affects it everything's connected everything's interrelated and your stress response is a primary tool to get you moving or not fighting flighting yeah, and so on or relaxing so it's uh, it's key key to how we live and of course synced in with all of this is the breath and like i said the mind so what changes when we go into a, um, a fight flight fright flop, freeze, fawn, uh, kind of state. Well, like I said, it's individual. What happens to you when you do it? There is a change in respiration. What exactly changes for you? 
Now, of course, the trauma triggers in the breath are, again, individual. A lot of people like to think that things are really simple. And that simplicity actually gets in the way of really working well with people. It, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, and so there won't be a one-size-fits-all formula on breathwork. There will be individuated practices that work well for the individual. And that's a really good key to understand breathwork practice per se is, you know, do, doing a, a five or an inhale and a seven on a hold and an eight or an exhale is going to have different effects for different people. It's not going to have one, one effect for everybody. It's, that's way, way, way too simplistic. Yeah. So really working well with understanding individuation and individual biology, and much more importantly, individual neuro or psychobiology is really important because then we can look at what are the individual changes that occur in that kind of adrenalized response. The other kind of response, of course, that occurs is cortisol. And cortisol is the kind of long-term mediator of stress. Cortisol is the hormone that kicks in when we've had, you know, enough adrenaline going on for a while that it becomes a kind of default state and cortisol kicks in to sustain that. And cortisol is great for reducing inflammation. We use it as an inflammatory medicine, anti-inflammatory medicine, but it's complicated in terms of brains working well because it doesn't let a brain work to its optimum. So if we're living in long-term stress, we have to have tools. Some of those tools are things like radical acceptance. Say, for example, you're looking after somebody who's it needs long-term care. You know, they're very ill, they may be dying, but they need long-term care. Or, you know, you're a parent of children. Again, somebody who's, who's growing and needs long-term care and lots of demands. What happens in those kind of situations is we have to be an acceptance of the situation. So there's a reframe, there's an internal reframe where we acknowledge that this kind of stressful situation is going to go on for some considerable period of time. And we have to deal with our own perceptual tools to be able to manage it well. So that's the, the role of radical acceptance there. And radical acceptance is profound and important in, in contexts like that. It's not profound and important in other contexts. In other contexts, we can be in acceptance of what's going on, but that acceptance then leads to action to change what's going on. Yeah? So there are different, so again, it depends on the context. Not only is there individuation, but there's individuation within the context that that individual is li living in as to how we can process and work with that. So quite a lot of profundity in terms of how we're looking at working effectively. And so this is why it's your resilience project. It's got to come out of your study of your body, your mind, your breath. And the more you study the, the interrelationships between these things over time, the more you begin to, and I'm going to use the word master, you begin to master those responses. You're going to be able to be aware enough of those responses so that you can make choices that make a difference to your behavior and make a difference to the world around you. And I'm going to call that skillfulness. You become skillful. You become increasingly skillful so that you can make positive, powerful choices to make a difference. Of course, you can take somebody, you know, and you can put them in a situation with a, you know, put them in a five-star hotel. They get all the food they want. You know, they get pool time. They get Netflix. They get everything they want, whenever they want it. Number one, it doesn't make them happy. 
But number two, it doesn't get rid of their stress responses because you change the context and you put them downtown somewhere in some urban complex ghetto situation. You take them out of that and put them in another context and their stress responses kick in big time, big time. So they haven't done the work. So, you know, if we want to be able to live well in any context, any situation, we have to do the work. And that simply means that we have to understand how we work so that we can make how we work workable. And that is the work of creating radical resilience. These stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, I mean, adrenaline can stay in the system for up to six hours. You know, repeated adrenaline doses from an active, overactive, overwhelmed, adrenalized lifestyle leads to stress cascades that often remain unresolved. And of course, that affects respiration. When we start to affect respiration like that, we're going to be more than likely creating hypoxic outcomes in the cells. And that's whereby we get less oxygen into the cells. That has long-term metabolic consequences. Hypoxia as more than, you know, on, where it's a lifestyle. We're not just doing a little bit of breath holding or something like that. We're not just doing, you know, a short period of pumping breath out and then holding the breath afterwards. And where we're going in and we're creating a lifestyle whereby, you know, the repeated rapid breathing, the over-breathing, if you like, that occurs often for, as a stress response, reduces carbon dioxide in the blood, and that reduces the oxygen into the mitochondria. It reduces the production of ATP. It, it makes it more complicated for cells to operate properly. And it also, unfortunately, in that context, then disinhibits something called HIFA, um, hypoxia-inducing factor A, which can then uh, is released to communicate with HIFB in the nucleus of the cell. And that communication between the HIFA, which is normally inhibited, and the HIFB can then lead to a change in genetic expression to change the metabolic function of the cell. And those changes can lead to precancerous conditions. So hypoxic type breath practices, and particularly more importantly, hypoxic type uh, lifestyles can become extremely detrimental long-term over time. Now, the complication comes that if we're just practicing hypoxic type breath practices, where we're doing stuff where we're reducing carbon dioxide levels on a regular basis, so we're regularly doing some kind of breathing more than metabolic demand. It feels great sometimes when you do that. Sometimes it can feel quite distressing, but it can feel really rather lovely. Yeah, but when we're doing that on a regular basis and we keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that, we're, our body is learning, that's in training, our body is learning to live in that state and that then creates a hypoxic lifestyle. So there are outcomes that could be rather detrimental. So we want to be careful with what we're doing with our breath practice. We want to be intelligent with our breath practice, more to the point. We want to be super intelligent because the reflexes in our body are set up to work really really well the breathing reflexes have been operating and running extremely well for 350 million years that's a decent amount of time i'll say that again you know the breathing reflexes in our body have been working really well to get to the point where you're sitting here and i'm sitting here they've been working really well for 350 million years and yes they're being messed with by culture you know the demands of culture and stress and that kind of thing but first of all we have to understand what they are and how they operate before we just go and radically muck around with them otherwise we don't know if we're doing any harm and we might be doing 
So it's really important to ask oneself these questions before just doing some random breath work. And cortisol is fantastic stuff. It initially offers resistance to stress. That's what it's there for. And it does this by increasing glucose availability. So you get a glucose spike in the bloodstream. You know, and there, that's there to provide more energy. But of course, if that uh, is continued, and especially if you're overeating a little bit as well, you get you start to get problems. You start to get reduction in insulin sensitivity and you get pre-diabetic. So stress can lead to a pre-diabetic complication, which is why I said earlier on, stress is connected to diabetes. Yeah, we've already had a look at the way stress might be connected to cancer. You know, cortisol has, cortisol has other effects as well. You know, it increase, um, leads to sensitivity of the blood vessels um, so they can be constricted more easily and it increases blood pressure. So in that context, we could be creating a context whereby, you know, we're raising blood pressure, which is fine if you're bleeding and fine if you're, you know, in certain situations, but in daily lifestyle of just dealing with work, that can cause complications again, can cause serious complications. And that kind of thing continued uh, you know, and also the effects on HRV, heart rate variability, and so on. All these different effects compound. And what we end up then with is this onset of these diseases that I'm talking about, which includes dementia, cardiometabolic disorders, cancer, inflammatory conditions. All of these are outcomes, natural outcomes of stress. So we want to be able to deal with this. Just take a breath in for a moment through the nose. Rest the tip of the tongue behind the top teeth. Smile. Breathe in slowly through the nose and just spread these nares a little bit. See how slowly you can breathe in. And then top up the breath. And then see how long you can breathe out. And if you breathe out really long and slow, and breathe out like you're breathing out through a little straw. Just keep going for as long as you can. Next time you breathe in, breathe in through the nose and check you're breathing into the belly. Big belly breath, slow inhale. Into the ribs a little bit, just a tiny little bit of lower rib breath here, just in the lower ribs here. Just second inhale. So it's a bi biphasic inhale, two parts to the inhale. One long, slow exhale. As long as you can on the exhale. And you can even hold the breath out a little bit after the end of the exhale. Finish the exhale. Make sure you finish it. A lot of people are way too busy to finish the exhale. So finishing the exhale is a really good thing to do. And there you are. You're beginning. You're beginning to be on track to changing the stress cascade around and starting to build resilience. Again, checking in, first of all, how does your body do how does your body change its breath patterns? How does your body change its thinking patterns? How does your body mind change its behaviors in the, in the stress context? You've got to study the stress first. You've got to study your stress. And then from there, if we start applying the tools, which are mind tools, reframing, we've talked a little bit about radical acceptance. There are many others. So on the online course we've got, which is uh, transforming stress into radical resilience, stress to radical resilience course, there are a lot of tools in there that you can start to learn learn from and work with and embed in your life, weave into your life, integrate into your life to start making these changes that we're looking for to make stress really workable and actually to make it fun. I'm talking about fun. One of the kinds of stress I'm talking about is you stress and you stress is the kind of stress. It's like sports. It's going to the gym. 
you know, it's making love. It's doing all the things that we really, really want to do, that we really like to do. But it's got those chemicals involved. You know, it's got those hormones involved. There's adrenaline in there, not so much cortisol, but there's adrenaline in there. But there's dopamine in there and there's other neurotransmitters in there. And we just like that stuff. It's really good. Yeah. So that's eustress. And when we can start looking at what's happening in our life and make it workable, when we start understanding our own stress patterns and stress cascades, and we can make those workable, then we can start changing the daily stress patterns that we experience and make them workable so that we can turn them from distress into eustress. We can turn them from overwhelm into challenge with the tools of you know, mental reframing and the other mental strategies we're working with, and also you know, changes in breath practice specifically adapted for our individual requirements, depending on the individuated entrained patterns of breathing that we have learned to, to manage stuff to be in our life and, and to get to the point we've got to. So this is about changing um, stress into radical, beautiful resilience. <laughs>